Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sit and Listen. Sit and Listen is a production of Science in the News, a graduate student organization at Harvard dedicated to opening lines of communications between scientists and, well, the rest of the world's experts and enthusiasts. Today's edition is part of a recurring series of episodes on science and society, where we bring scholars across various disciplines, science, public policy, design, history, you name it, to engage in discussions on a wide range of relevant topics. I'm Amy Gilson. And I'm Vinnie Mani. As you can hear, this is not for a PA system. It's because we are recording a podcast. <laughs> and you are here for the very first time we were recording one live. We are two of the founders of the Sit and Listen podcast, along with Elizabeth Yench and Angela Shi. This podcast is a partnership between Science in the News and also the Harvard Program on Science, Technology, and Society. And so uh, we want to thank Sheila Jasnoff, who is the professor who is at the head of that program, um, who has supported this podcast, helped us with the scripts. So we're really indebted to her for the support and that partnership. Before we get started with today's content, I wanted to turn the mic over to Jean-Francois, who is the director of the collection of historical scientific instruments here to tell us about this exhibit. Thank you, Amy. So the here Amy was talking about is the radio exhibit. It's called Radio Contact, tuning in to politics, technology, and culture. And so we're here in the Science Center at Harvard. And so I'm really, really happy to be able to host uh, this event here today. You are listening right now. We are not here live. Uh, we're open until December 9th. So we're in the, in the Science Center in room 251. So make sure that you come and see that great exhibit. Thank you so much, Jean-Francois, for allowing us to be here, and we're very, very excited. I want to take a minute to quickly mention uh, Science in the News' sponsors, who are the Harvard COOP, the Division of Medical Sciences over at Harvard Medical School, as well as the Graduate Student Council at GSAS. And uh, for today's episode, specifically, the uh, exhibit on historical scientific instruments. I, I want to quickly describe how today's going to work. So these ladies have put together a wonderful script discussing a lot of topics. So they'll record, and then afterwards we'll have it open for discussion. Hope you enjoy. In this episode, we will talk about the incredibly interesting and increasingly important topic that affects each and every one of us, gender. My name is Michelle Frank, and I'm a PhD candidate in neuroscience here at Harvard. My research is focused on reproductive behaviors in the fruit fly. Mating behaviors are sexually dimorphic. By definition, different sexes play different roles in reproduction. And in the fly, the parts of the brain that control mating behaviors vary between sexes as well. Given the nature of my research, I'm extremely interested in the ways in which research about sex differences is or can be affected by our cultural understandings of sex and gender, and, in turn, how research about sex differences is or can be interpreted in broader society to influence our understandings of sex and gender. My name is Kelly Owens, and I'm a doctoral candidate in sociology at Northwestern University and a visiting research fellow with the Program on Science, Technology, and Society at the Harvard Kennedy School. My research explores the social dimensions of science, medicine, and gender with a particular emphasis on decision-making in childbirth. I've always been interested in how health policy affects how sex and gender operate in medicine, which I'm excited to talk more about today. Hi, I'm Jessica Cousins, and I am a master's candidate in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, a research assistant with the Program on Science, Technology, and Society, and the chair of the Future Society, which aims to improve understanding about the most consequential emerging technologies. My research in particular has been on the social, ethical, and political implications of human genetic and reproductive technologies. The intersection of gender in these spaces is complicated and important, and I'm looking forward to touching on some of the current issues in this podcast. 
And my name is Rachel Hannibut, and I'm a master's candidate at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I study the brain and how we can use cognitive science to better inform the education system on the topic of sex education in particular. I also study interpersonal relations with a focus on, you guessed it, gender. My work with sexual assault and domestic violence awareness and prevention, as well as my work in helping youth to develop ethical, romantic, and sexual relationships with one another, is the driving force behind my passion for gender studies and might explain some of the perspectives I'll be bringing to this episode. Okay, so today we're talking about gender. Maybe we can start off with a softball. Let's look at the fact that from the Little League to the Olympics, the majority of sports are segregated by gender and follow very different trajectories. We've become so accustomed to seeing teams split up in this way that it often appears to represent natural or inherent differences between the genders. But in reality, these boundaries are not clear-cut, and a lot of work is required to police them. Different groups contest where the boundary should lie and whether there should be one at all. Of course, they do lead to real differences in people's outcomes. Yeah, so my favorite women's basketball team is the Indiana Fever, um, and basketball star Tamika Catchings, um, she earns the league maximum, which is $105,000 a season, but this is more than $300,000 less than the NBA's league minimum. That's crazy. So policing the borders between men and women's competitions has particularly high stakes in the Olympics. There are a number of well-known cases of someone who is competing as a woman suddenly facing investigation into whether they are quote-unquote really a woman. The history of methods used since the International Olympic Committee started what they called gender verification in 1968 have evolved from the humiliating and crude practice of asking someone to drop their underwear, but even the methods used now are highly controversial. Indian runner Duti Chand was described as being a sure-shot Olympic medalist at the age of 18. But after winning a race in the Asian Junior Athletics Championships in 2013, the Athletics Federation of India asked her to take a gender test, which used the more recent methodology of testing how much testosterone she had. It was determined that her natural levels of testosterone were usually only found in men, and she was asked to undergo corrective surgery, which can involve hormone suppression therapy and sometimes even genital surgery. This is the prescription provided by the International Olympic Committee and other top sports bodies. But Chand refused to undergo treatment, declaring at the time, I am who I am. A court subsequently suspended these rules for two years, and the evidence behind the method is currently being reassessed. Whether or not this method has any meaningful validity, it is worth noting that the use of testosterone as the primary indicator of gender builds a certain degree of fluidity into the process and divorces gender from any particular fixed physical attribute. But what does it mean that the International Olympic Committee's testing apparatus is given more weight than Chan's experience of her own body? Harvard professor Sheila Jasanoff's work on the creation of legitimacy in democratic societies through science and situated political culture is particularly useful here. This example shows the cracks that can occur in that legitimacy when divergent forms of knowledge are confronted. Given this context, it is probably not surprising that a committee attempting to define a single global conception of gender boundaries has led to a lot of controversy. So leaving aside for now the question of whether sports should be segregated at all, given the necessary arbitrariness of any line drawn, the kind of moral panic people express when they cannot categorize someone as either male or female highlights the social pressures that exist around identification. The most common categories you hear are sex and gender. And when we think about gender as opposed to sex, we tend to see it as the less straightforward, less biological term. While current studies refer to sex as a set of anatomical differences between males and females, um, they often 
refer to gender as a multidimensional sociocultural construct that includes identity, behaviors, and even beliefs. John Money originally um, started using the term gender role in journal articles in the 1950s to differentiate from commonly understood sex roles, which was seen as completely biological. This distinction was used far beyond what Money might have originally thought, um, and it was taken up by the feminist movement and used as a conceptual tool. A fact that is well illustrated by a rise in the use of the word gender in academic papers that happened in the 60s. More recently, feminists, prominently Judith Butler, has also um, gone further and rejected the notion that there is something called biological sex that can ever be totally untangled from the social understandings of sex. However, many of us continue um, to try and find distinctions between sex and gender, and we find these useful in order to free an individual's personality from whatever their biology might be. So to open up this question, um, we might start to think about where might we locate sex on the body? The genitals, um, X and Y chromosomes, the brain? So today's academic sexologists, as they are called, distinguish between chromosomal sex, gonadal sex, hormonal sex, genital sex, sexual identity, and even quote-unquote brain sex. Each of these factors fall along a spectrum that can vary widely across members of a particular sex, to such an extent that many researchers have suggested that our commitment to a two-sex system is itself misplaced. The scholar Anne Fausto Sterling has famously suggested that humans could be more properly categorized into at least five different sexes. Nonetheless, both the biological study of sex differences and our social norms remain deeply committed to the idea of a dichotomy between men and women. Meanwhile, sex differences and the biological factors that determine sex differences vary dramatically between species as well. Populations of nematodes, for example, consist of hermaphrodites and males. Meanwhile, although humans have two sex chromosomes, the X and the Y, other species can be found with 10 sex chromosomes or only one. In fact, many important sex-determining genes aren't located on the sex chromosomes at all, and as the historian Sarah Richardson points out in her book Sex Itself, even the term sex chromosome may itself be misleading, as it obscures the essential contributions to sex determination made by genes located on other chromosomes. This diversity of sex-determining factors both within and across species makes it difficult, if not impossible, to locate sex in any one place on the body. Of course, that doesn't stop people from trying, and at times, efforts to map sex onto the physical body can be extremely problematic. One pervasive idea is that the human male and female brains are actually hardwired differently. This has mapped onto what is known as a neuromyth, or a widely held belief that male and female brains are of different sizes due to some inherent capacity-based differences for males and females overall. But what goes into intelligence itself is much more complex. And in reality, the fact that men have slightly larger brains on average than females does not indicate greater intelligence. But in the extreme case of macroencephaly, which is the case of an abnormally large brain, having a larger brain isn't necessarily a good thing. Brains of different sizes simply confront similar cognitive challenges while using differently sized mechanisms and sometimes different neural machinery um, in the way that it's connected. And because no two brains are exactly alike, the distinction between male and female brains is less important in the grander scheme of human difference as a whole. An easier way to think about this um, is by using the idea of a country. Um, you can't just look at a country and know its GDP. Similarly, looking at brain size alone can tell you nothing about the IQ of that brain. Uh, nonetheless, myths about brains and the misplaced idea that there are exclusive locations in the brains that are responsible for certain types of actions, such as emotional processing, have leaked into the ways that we view males' and females' abilities in society. This kind of neurosexism um, ignores the complex reality of all the interconnected networks of the brain that are responsible for a variety of actions and places gross generalizations on our bodies that tend to hide more than they reveal. 
Attempts to locate sex in the body are nothing new. Let's go back to the 18th century. The newly flourishing science of anatomy promised an unprecedented understanding of the human body as illustrators painstakingly began to dissect and document the human form. Interestingly, they ended up providing us with just as much of an understanding about their cultural beliefs as they did about anatomy. As historian of science Londa Schiebinger describes in the book The Mind Has No Sex, anatomists in the early 1700s considered the skeleton to be a sort of foundational ground plan that lent organization and structure to other aspects of the human body. Thinkers at the time also believed that comparing the skeletal structures of different groups of people could reveal something fundamental about the differences between those groups. By that logic, any difference between male and female skeletons would indicate essential differences between men and women. One of the most popular and widely circulated illustrations of the female skeleton from this time period was drawn by Marie Theroud Darkenville. Although this image was considered to be an accurate representation of the standard female form, it was in fact directly influenced by prevailing cultural notions regarding the differences between men and women. Through to Arkenville's skeleton featured wide hips and an extremely narrow ribcage, and in the commentary accompanying her illustration, Through to Arkenville emphasized that these features differ from those found in males. In proportion to the rest of the body, women's skulls are, on average, larger than those of men. Through to Arkenville, however, represented the skull as proportionally smaller than a male skull. Because this image was taken to be representative of the female skeleton, it served to reinforce two underlying social assumptions. First, by emphasizing the extent to which the female skeleton varied from that of the male, Through Arkenville led scientific credibility to the argument that men and women are fundamentally different on a deep biological level. Second, by emphasizing the width of the pelvis, but not the size of the skull, which at that time was considered a measure of intelligence, she reinforced the idea that the most womanly woman is one who gives birth, which reinforced social norms about the roles women ought to have in society, namely, that women ought to serve as mothers in domestic spaces. Now, while it's tempting to believe that examples like this simply reflect a distant, sexist past, our cultural assumptions about gender norms continue to influence modern biology. Another example, presented by Emily Martin, an anthropologist at NYU, demonstrates the way in which prevailing gender stereotypes can affect the way that human reproductive organs are described in medical textbooks. The egg is often represented much as a damsel in distress. She drifts passively down the fallopian tubes, waiting to encounter a sperm. Sperm, meanwhile, are generally described as active, searching, engaged in a perilous journey through the warm darkness of the genital tract. Some texts lend urgency to this quest by pointing out that the egg will die within hours of being released from the ovary if it is not rescued by a sperm. Of course, sperm also die within a few hours if they fail to encounter the egg. Most textbooks, however, use a tone of fragility and dependency only when discussing the impending death of the egg. Even though reality involves the mutual interplay between egg and sperm, textbook narratives often fall back on language describing the sperm as active and aggressive, and the egg as either passive or a femme fatale, luring unwitting sperm to their deaths. As Harvard professor Sheila Jasanoff has argued in her work on co-production, the way we produce knowledge about biology is intimately tied to the ways we imagine ourselves and our societies. The metaphors scientists use to describe reproduction are not value neutral, but are representations of how our society thinks men and women ought to be. In turn, our societal understandings of gender roles are affected by our interpretations of nature and what is natural. By recognizing that natural and social orders are co-produced, we can start to uncover why some representations of biological reproduction are more dominant than others. Exactly. One of the things that might be influencing scientific representations of sex and gender is the historical lack of women in science. In that vein, for many years, the egg received much less attention than the sperm cell in research, and female aggression received much less att attention than aggression in males. The same is true with the lack of attention that is paid to the clitoris in medical textbooks and even sex education. 
referencing Londra Schriebinger again at Stanford, knowledge about the clitoris, contraception, and women's sexual health in general was apparently much more widespread before predominantly male doctors replaced predominantly female midwives as women's primary health care providers. Of course, women aren't immune to sexist science either. Um, remember that skeleton we just talked about? It was drawn by a woman. But I still have to wonder, if female scientists had the equal ability to direct research programs and make those decisions as males did, would these disparities be so severe? It's a great question, Rachel. And yes, it's impossible to know what science might look like now if women had a stronger historical presence in research. What's even more troubling is that this void of women in research was compounded by not studying females as research subjects either. For many years, most clinical trials were done on what was considered the stereotypical person, a 60-kilogram white male, 35 years of age. In the 1980s, however, health activists started arguing that females should be included in clinical trials because it was unacceptable to assume that the findings from studies on men could be directly applied to women. By the 1990s, many health agencies started rolling out new requirements to include women, racial and ethnic minorities, children, and the elderly as research subjects. The most substantial of these policy changes came from the NIH Revitalization Act of 1993, which requires federally funded research to include a broad range of human groups. Steve Epstein, professor of sociology at Northwestern University, has written about the positive and negative consequences of this change in NIH policy in his book, Inclusion, The Politics of Difference in Medical Research. In the book, he highlights how the policies had a direct impact on clinical research. So for example, in the late 1980s, a new drug called Seldane was selling quickly because it was the first antihistamine not to cause drowsiness. But clinicians soon noticed that one of the side effects of the drug, cardiac arrhythmia, was occurring more often in women. It turns out that women were experiencing higher rates of cardiac arrhythmia because the time period needed for the heart to recharge between beats becomes slightly longer for women on average after puberty. Scientists did not discover this until the 1990s, in part because the NIH started requiring them to pay attention to sex differences. So in the case of Seldane, the inclusion of women in clinical trials had a real impact on women's health. In 2014, the NIH took these requirements even further and announced a new policy requiring researchers to use both male and female materials in preclinical research, like animal studies and cell line-based research. But the requirement to include women in clinical research and female samples in preclinical research also makes some people nervous. First, the emphasis on sex differences could lead to improper treatment for a patient who doesn't conform to the stereotype that pertains to her group. For example, the CDC recently released guidelines suggesting that sexually active women from ages 15 to 44 should not consume alcohol without being on birth control, because if they were to get pregnant, alcohol consumption could negatively affect the fetus. One of the problems with this recommendation, among many, is that it completely neglects women who are sexually active with other women, and therefore not at risk to get pregnant. The medicalization of sex and gender differences makes it easier for us to assume that women are a single category of people with the same behaviors and the same risk factors. A focus on sex differences in clinical research could also lead to inaccurate and problematic understandings of sex and gender. Unlike research on biological differences between races, which has sparked heated debate about racial profiling, there's been no public outcry about presuming that men and women will react differently in clinical trials. When scientists split clinical trials into groups of men and women, we may be unintentionally solidifying the differences and boundaries between male and female, boundaries that many people like queer health activists have worked so hard to tear down. 
Exactly. And these activists have been successful in many domains. For example, we have been seeing a national trend towards more inclusive bathrooms. Public bathrooms are a pervasive example of a space that has traditionally been designed only for men or only for women. Most of them are marked by just one of the classic faceless forms we are also accustomed to. But for those for whom gender is not taken for granted, public bathrooms can be a source of great anxiety. Thanks largely to the work of people in LGBTQI communities, the number of gender-neutral bathrooms has grown considerably in the past decade. Many city-run facilities, workplaces, and more than 150 college campuses across the United States now have gender-neutral bathrooms to create safe spaces for trans and genderqueer people. But this kind of progress is not without its pushbacks. As most of you will have seen on the news, North Carolina's governor signed a bill in March banning transgender people from using the bathroom that fits their gender identity, instead forcing them to use the one consistent with their sex as noted at birth. Such policy is discriminatory and out of touch, and also risks putting people in danger. Numerous transgender people have shared shocking stories of the violence they have faced walking into what seems to be the wrong bathroom. As Attorney General Loretta Lynch put it on Monday when she spoke about North Carolina's law, state-sanctioned determination never looks good. But coming back to Kelly's point about the way that women are being institutionally incorporated into scientific research, we also can't forget the ways in which women's bodies have been used by and for the advancement of science that hasn't necessarily served them. Similarly to traditional childbearing, assisted reproductive technologies are massively indebted to their use of women's bodies. They can provide an important service for same-sex couples, as well as for those struggling with infertility, and they have enabled the birth of at least 5 million children, myself included. But it is worth knowing that the history of in vitro fertilization, or IVF, and its impacts today are more complicated than the smiling faces of perfect babies we see on so many fertility clinics' websites. Robert Edwards is the man credited for developing IVF and enabling the birth of Louise Brown, the first test tube baby. He won a Nobel Prize in 2010 for this important work. What many people do not know about this history, however, is that Edwards was also a member of Britain's Eugenics Society for the majority of his career. He understood that having a technological control over reproduction was about more than overcoming infertility. It was also about making choices about the kinds of people that should be brought into this world. Disability and racial justice scholars have argued that we should be wary of this kind of normalization of high-tech eugenics into our world today that come in under the banner of greater autonomy and choice. And although there are many women and couples who are enormously grateful to IVF, this is not a technology that necessarily improves women's health outcomes or that affects men and women equally. For example, the process of obtaining sperm and eggs in order to undergo IVF could not be more distinct. While a few minutes and a titillating magazine are usually the only requirements needed for a man to participate, the process for women is far more intrusive. Egg retrieval requires weeks of self-administered, off-label synthetic hormone injections to first shut down and then hyperstimulate the ovaries to produce multiple eggs at once instead of the usual one per month. Women are then typically asked to take further medication to help the eggs to mature, to prevent their bodies from releasing them too soon, and to prepare the lining of the uterus. After a couple weeks of this, the eggs are removed from the body by inserting a long needle through the vagina and into the follicles to retrieve each one. Side effects of this process are many, but also include a unique risk known as ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, or OHSS. This is somewhat of a catch-all term used for a variety of symptoms that range from nausea and bloating to enlarged ovaries, severe abdominal pain, blood clots, and kidney failure in rare cases. Of course, the pregnancy that follows all of this, whether taken on by an intending mother or a surrogate mother, is also the work of women. 
There's been a recent marketing push towards so-called egg freezing by companies such as egg banks, spelled with two X's, for healthy young women who are not infertile to voluntarily undergo egg retrieval and keep their eggs on ice just in case they may need them later. These companies are not technically regulated in the United States. They're encouraged to follow professional guidelines, but they're technically flouting them by encouraging women who have no medical need to undergo these procedures. They advertise that egg freezing is a smart choice for career-oriented women who know they want a family one day, but do not currently have Mr. Right, the time, or the money with which to currently have a child. In fact, I recently saw an ad up in a Harvard dorm that promised free egg freezing. The catch was that you would also give some of your eggs to another woman who was unable to conceive on her own. Yeah, I have definitely seen those ads. Actually, Vinny and Angela, who also work on this podcast, went to an egg freezing recruitment party a while back. It sounded pretty strange, drinking wine and talking about egg freezing. But, <laughs> but they're going to be doing a whole episode in the fall on what happens to eggs when you freeze them and what happens when you thaw them. Yeah, egg freezing has definitely made headlines recently thanks to those parties. And to announcements by Facebook and other top technology companies that they will now offset many of the associated costs, which are typically around $20,000, as a benefit to women who work for them. So such offerings highlight the distributional asymmetries of these technologies, right? Most women do not work in Silicon Valley's top tech companies, nor do they have several tens of thousands lying around. Facebook's announcement was billed as a way to attract women to traditionally male-dominated fields, but not all women see egg freezing as a real solution. Not least because even after three tries, frozen eggs fail to result in a live birth 77% of the time when taken from women aged 30 and 91% of the time when taken from women aged 40. A compounding factor of the rise of IVF over the past three decades is that once you have embryos outside of the body, they can be genetically tested and people can make choices about which embryo to implant. This has provided a new tool for the practice of sex selection, since a couple that undergoes this process can now opt to implant only male or female embryos if they have a preference. The practice of sex selection, which is usually achieved through cruder means, is one that causes inordinate complications in some regions of the world. Mara Havistendal has written a book called Unnatural Selection, which documents this trend and the fact that Asia alone now has 160 million missing women and girls, referring to all the girls that would have been born if the pregnancies had not been terminated due to cultural and societal preferences for boys. Using IVF in order to purposefully choose the sex of your child is still a rare and expensive practice, though there have been cases in the news. But as people wait longer to start families and more people around the world opt for IVF, parents-to-be will increasingly be faced with the question, do you want a boy or a girl? Not only do these kinds of questions reinforce problematic notions of biological determinism, but they may also devalue the existence of women and girls alive today. Wow. So then sex selection leads us back to the social implications of privileging male bodies over female bodies or to privileging gender-conforming bodies. Devaluing females, the reproductive machines of human beings, seems a bit counterintuitive, right? Right. And women's eggs are not only useful for reproduction. They are also desired for the advancement of certain areas of scientific research. For example, embryonic stem cell research, which is used to understand human development and disease and has prompted a small number of clinical trials, obviously uses eggs to make the embryos it requires. Additionally, research being carried out on genetic modification techniques, such as mitochondrial replacement and CRISPR gene editing, also need women's eggs. So you start to see the strange interconnections between science, society, and gender. 
at the same time that assisted reproductive and stem cell technologies offer opportunities to escape our biology in meaningful ways. The language, economy, and politics surrounding them are still largely defined by fairly fixed social norms. UC Berkeley professor Karis Thompson explores the ontological choreography of these multiple competing com claims on meaning in her books, Making Parents and Good Science. These examples highlight the ways in which science tends to benefit from women's bodies, even while the women themselves are often erased from the stories of scientific advancement we hear. Erasing women from stories is something that speaks to my interest in education and social relationships as well. Taking this idea of women's presence in the world to the level of children, when kids don't see women in the texts and the stories they read, when they don't see women as researchers, it greatly influences the perceptions they develop about themselves and their own capacities. It's a super important thing to take into consideration. One example of this is the phrase, good morning, boys and girls, which is commonly a saying used by a lot of K-12 educators. Or even something like, let's sit boy, girl, boy, girl today. Many times these simple phrases are taken for granted in the classroom. But scholars such as Rebecca Bigler at the University of Texas at Austin College of Liberal Arts has taken a deeper look into whether the ascription to certain gender roles is actually innate in children. In an experiment, both girl-identifying and boy-identifying, as well as gender-nonconforming students, were given red and blue t-shirts randomly. Teachers were then instructed to address the class by saying, good morning, blues and reds, or let's sit blue, red, blue, red today, rather than using gendered language. What researchers found was quite interesting. Students began to segregate themselves along the lines of the color of the shirt that they were wearing, rather than by gender. They even started to report higher opinions of peers in the same color group as their own. But even changing the ways we talk to and ask students about their own identities does not highlight one of the most pressing issues of our time. While I spoke earlier about the ways of allowing or not allowing self-identification and how that impacts students' perceptions of how he or she or Z is allowed to identify, seeing societally recognized identities in popular media or on television and even in the classroom also affects this image that children feel they're allowed to have for themselves. A funny example of this is an another anecdote that sort of flips this equation around. There was a woman and mother who was a rocket scientist. And a lot of her other friends were also female rocket scientists. One of these friends one day asked her son whether he wanted to be one too. And he responded, no way, that job's for girls. However, the majority of scientists, famous figures in textbooks, and examples used in the classroom embody the identity so socially and politically of a wealthy, white, male-identifying individual. While numerous studies have documented the effects of not being able to see oneself as the protagonist in a story or not being able to identify with the social identity of a doctor or a lawyer, the true effects of the prevalence of the male perspective in curriculum, more broadly, has not been as widely documented. And I think it becomes important to look closely at the ways in which we not only construct difference, but the ways in which we allow these differences to seep into the decision-making of the narratives that we tell kids. Similar to the effect that language used to welcome kids into the classroom, curriculum, no matter how well prepared, can be biased towards one type of student. And that's just wrong. Achievement gaps seem to raise public attention on this, but money is not the only factor in why certain students do better than others. And at the risk of oversimplifying this point, I think it might be best to think about the importance of critically analyzing the influence of certain domestic do dominant perspectives, rather. To no surprise, psychologists and sociologists know that our social structures and the constant reinforcement of gendered norms creates many of these quote-unquote gender differences that we see in society. Rachel, that's a really interesting point you make about how children's experiences around gender influences how they view and perform their gender. 
The way you're talking about it, it could all be cultural, but there's also some evidence that our experiences, especially in early development, influences how our bodies and brains develop. So these experiences kids have regarding gender and other things could actually lead to biological differences between people without there being any genetic basis for these differences. Just like malnourishment in childhood can make people shorter or early language acquisition affects auditory regions of the brain, we might learn how to act, either more masculine or more feminine, early on, all of which then becomes embedded in our biology. That's fascinating. And regardless of whether these expressions of gender have a biological basis, our cultural expectations of gender norms can themselves have a profound impact on people's behavior overall. I remember the recent book, Whistling Vivaldi by Claude Steele, who talks about stereotype threats, which basically result from the ways that social acceptance of the dichotomies and definitions science often talks about have implicated certain subgroups of the population. For example, a girl who might have been subjected to certain expectations of being bad at math or only good at the humanities or whatever the current social stigma is, um, is asked about their identity. If they're asked before they take an exam, they actually did worse on the exam. Calling this a self-fulfilling prophecy or a negative blow to self-esteem isn't going to change anything. However, Steele's work has highlighted the influence of societal stereotypes on students and their ability to do well in the education system. Making the change to ask demographic questions at the end of a survey rather than at the beginning, for instance, and even allowing students to self-identify um, instead of pick from checkboxes, this all speaks to the larger idea of preventing difference-based exclusion and providing better, more inclusive environments to, to students who do not segregate or stereotype them based on their sex or gender or any of the ways in which they self-identify. So throughout this episode, we've problematized three types of boundaries, those between sex and gender, those between male and female, and those between their biological and social constructions. And yet, we've seen how the ways that these boundaries are drawn can have profound effects on people's lives. As we learn how messy biology really is, and how important our surroundings are in constituting that biology, we should think critically about who has the power to police these borders, as well as the way that science has been used as a legitimating force in seeing and creating differences. So, what do you all think? who should get to decide, and whose knowledge should be prioritized when it comes to science, sex, and gender. First question, anyone? Hi, I'm Sarah Schechner, and curator, another curator of this exhibit and of the collection Historical Scientific Instruments and a Historian of Science. My question goes back to this using a standard male model in health trials and before bringing in women. And I was wondering if with the, the important cell line, HeLa cells, of, that stemmed from a woman, Henrietta Lacks, when those cell lines were used for research, was it clear to the researchers that this, these were female originating cells and maybe have p components or things that are you know, individualized from a female body, whatever that might be, or were they used as standard cells and whether that there is any such difference in the cellular structure that would matter in this or the outcomes of those understandings either way. So I can give a response that's based more on sort of my perception of how scientists talk about them than it is on any rigorous study. But I think most often when people talk about HeLa cells, the difference that they think about is the fact that they're cancer cells. Because the biology of cancer cells is itself very different than other kinds of cells. And so 
there might be differences due to the fact that they were from a woman, but my guess is that any of those differences would probably be superseded by the very different biology that comes from the cancerous nature of those cells. Uh, as I'm sitting here, uh, you know, I can't help but notice that it's four women on the panel. And so I was just wondering, what kind of efforts did you make to diversify your points of view and to include men's points of view in this? Yeah, so thank you for your question. A lot of times when gender studies, women's studies, any of these other studies happen, a lot of times the people studying it are oftentimes those people. And it is hard. That's one of the biggest challenges for sure. Specifically with our group, though, in terms of the perspectives, we also have been drawing, most of the people actually cited, I think, I didn't do a tally, but most of the people cited were men in our research that we use. So I'd like to say that we still did have quite a diverse perspective, even if we were kind of talking at the extremes of the implications of gender and sex and, and making those distinctions. We also um, did have a couple male graduate students that didn't have time to actually be involved in the writing and the recording, but who sent us ideas and feedback on the script itself. Which isn't to say that there aren't yeah. other things that we definitely could have included, mm -hmm. constructions of masculinity, that sort of thing, yeah. didn't really make the final cut. So that's, there's always more that we could do. I wanted to ask about kind of this critical tension between not generalizing the differences in groups, but then having to understand the differences in individuals. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that tension. And then practically, what are the next steps um, in terms of what, what should be done in the near future to address some of the concerns that you've vocalized? I'll talk briefly about your first question. There's another example that I almost added here of Ambien use, and they noticed that women had higher rates of adverse side effects with Ambien, so they lowered the recommended dose for women. But then further studies found out that that was really just a body weight effect and that women generally clear Ambien from the system faster than men, but once you account for things that really have no influence on gender and sex, then that difference goes away. Uh, so I think researchers need to be really careful with that, and that's something that I worry about. By requiring studies to look at differences between men and women, you might then not think about other confounding variables. I think for me, one of the biggest things that I would like to see and that I think is actually happening is just more awareness about that tension, because it is sort of the fundamental problem of by emphasizing difference, you risk recreating it. But you also need to make sure that women have equal opportunities for healthcare and for being understood, as do men. And I think part of the solution is just for researchers and for other people to understand that the tension is there and to kind of give an impetus to look beyond just the simple sex or gender categories and to maybe look for alternative explanations for things. And I think that's happening, but it definitely has farther to go. I think sometimes in this the U.S. context in particular, we kind of think, oh, gender has been sorted out. We're, we're kind of overcome the majority of that struggle. And I think just continuing to talk about it is probably helpful, especially at the younger level. I know that a lot of kids really think that it's been sorted. And then when they have issues come up, there isn't a good avenue or a lot of knowledge about where to go or who to talk to and how to make sense of these different things that are coming up or if you are uh, struggling with gender identity and things like that. So I think broadening the conversation and continuing the conversation is important. Thanks for tuning in to Sit and Listen. We'll be back soon with more episodes on using animals in scientific research, the possible reproducibility crisis going on in science research now, and many more. 
In the meantime, we want to hear your thoughts on science and gender and your suggestions for the podcast. Email us at sitnpodcast at gmail.com or tweet at sitnboston. If you like today's show, definitely subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. We're really grateful for any feedback we get, and positive reviews will help others find our podcast. The SITN blog and this episode's show notes can be found at our shiny new website, sitn.hms.harvard.edu. Until next time.